Hello. Thank you for downloading this sermon by Pastor Casey Helenchek. Casey is a missionary pastor with Village Missions. Currently, Casey and his wife Hope and their six children serve the Bangor Community Church and the surrounding area of Bangor, California. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital community churches in rural North America. We now invite you to open your Bibles and journey with us. There we go. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Uh, as always, if you do not have a Bible, please see me after the service. We can get one into your hands. So Luke chapter 9, as we have uh, been seeing, uh, shows the change in direction of, of Jesus and the focus of his ministry. Uh, he's been ministering to the region of Galilee up until this point, and now he turns his direction, he turns his eyes to Jerusalem, and more specifically, uh, to the cross, to his death, and to the resurrection. It started out after Peter proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, we saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus spoke to Elijah and Moses. Last week we saw Jesus along with Peter, James, and John. They came down off the mount and walked right into the spiritual warfare that was ramping up in order to keep Jesus from the cross. Jesus healed the boy with the unclean spirit and reunited him with his father. We left off with the first half of verse 43, that all were astonished at the majesty of God. And Jesus now has some things he wants to say. He has some some things that he wants to teach the apostles before uh, wants to get these teachings in before he gets to the cross. Uh, He needs to focus on, and he needs to focus them on, the reason for his incarnation, which is, which he's going to remind them of first thing here. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and we're going to read this morning's passage, Luke chapter 9, starting in the second half of verse 43 through verse 48. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, Please follow along in your preferred translations. So Luke 9, 43 through 48, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to record what we now read. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." Thus says the word of God. So the first thing I want to touch on is the break in the middle of verse 43. Uh, I'm assuming most Bibles, I know the the ones that I looked at uh, all this week, uh, have a break in the middle of verse 43, separating it uh, how I did between last week and this week. Uh, I didn't bring it up last week, and sometimes I won't when that happens, but I wanted to bring it up this week. When we read the Bible... Every single word that we read in the Bible is inspired and inerrant. Uh, We've learned in our our, uh, CDI class on bibliology 
that even the past, present, and future tenses of the word are inspired. The plurals and the possessives, that everything written down in the Bible is perfect and the inerrant word of God. However, the chapter numbers and breaks and the verse numbers and breaks are not inspired and inerrant. Those were inserted much later in history as helpful means to memorize scripture and to find useful passages, kind of like a roadmap getting uh, to where you need to get to. Uh, Since they are not inspired, occasionally you will find a spot where they don't make as much sense or where they maybe were uh, definitely where I would choose if I were doing it to put a different uh, to put a break in a different spot. Uh, Most Bible translators agree that this is uh, with verse 43, a a verse that makes more sense to be separated between them. Uh, And that's just because there's a a change in uh, subject, a change in the story. Um, It's just a natural breaking point in the middle of this verse. So just wanted to get that out there. On to the actual text. About a week and a half ago in the text, uh, in, the, in the time that Jesus is sharing here, uh, Jesus told his disciples that as the Messiah, he must suffer and die. This is back in Luke 9, 21 and 22. The apostles didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And Peter, so devoted and passionate, wanting to do the will of God, wanting to stand up for Jesus, uh, actually started instead to do the will of Satan. And he was trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross, to not have to die. To, to take his power then and there. And now between now and then, uh, the disciples saw the transfiguration. They saw Elijah and Moses. They saw Jesus cast out unclean spirits and they saw the boy healed and reunited with his father. And while they were still marveling, and just within that week, week and a half span of all that they had seen, while they were still marveling at the majesty of God, Jesus pulls them aside and shares something with his apostles. He's telling them, this is the reason that I am here. Not all these other miracles, not the healings, the casting out of demons, not the the power over nature itself, not to liberate you from Rome, not to do any of those political things you're expecting of me, but this is why I came down from heaven. As Mark's gospel explains, he came to be a ransom for many. He came down to give his life for ours, to pay the penalty for sin that we couldn't pay. He tells the apostles that the Son of Man, that's, that's himself, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. And if that wasn't clear enough, Mark's gospel makes it even clearer, saying the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He says, I am going to be put to death. Remember this. Don't forget this. And... This is a direct contrast in what we expect. When we see the majesty of God, when we see the glory of God, what the apostles had just recently seen, uh, that they had seen the power of Jesus through all that he had been doing. And to contrast that with the horror and the shock and the shame of a death on the cross, it didn't make sense to them. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying no matter how clear he was being. Luke writes, they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. That's a quadruple negative right there. Anytime there's repetition in the scriptures, 
it's, you know it's important. You have to pay attention. You have to look, okay, this is being repeated. What am I supposed to see here? When it's quadruply repeated, then you know it's something of vital importance. So as one theologian puts it, the, the disciples and all of Israel, they were waiting for the royal pomp of the son of David. They were waiting for the warrior king to ride in and, and free Israel and lift Israel up as the greatest nation on earth. That's not why Jesus came. They were not prepared or willing to see the truth about what Jesus needed to do. God opens and closes the eyes. He is absolutely sovereign, and he is the one who calls us and saves us. He opened and closes the eyes of the apostles. They did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. But we are also responsible for our actions and our decisions. And the apostles here were not willing to look at the cross. They were also not willing to ask the questions needed to stretch them and grow them, to open their eyes. God told them clearly, and he also hid it from them, blinded them for the time being. Scripture often, the Gospels often show us, uh, Jesus told the disciples things, and it says in the Gospels that they would not remember what Jesus said until after the resurrection. It was reminded to them about what Jesus had said. And so this is, this is one of those things Jesus knows. I'm telling you to remember this. You're not going to understand it right now, but I'm telling you this now so that you will remember it later when you need to. They just, they couldn't and wouldn't tie the suffering servant that we see from Isaiah that, that was prophesied to come as the Messiah. They couldn't tie that understanding to the coming Messiah until after the cross when their eyes were opened. And the disciples were scared to ask. This is a natural human thing. Every single one of us, I think, has experienced this at one point in time. And if not, congratulations. I'm not that perfect. There's things that we don't want to ask because we're scared. We're scared about how we'll be seen. We'll, scare, we'll be scared that we should have already known it, that we did already know it and we forgot it, whatever. There's things that we are scared to ask and we need to, to be able to learn from that. Uh, all, all of these things are, are the disciples. One of the things I want to be clear on with the disciples is that they did not misunderstand what Jesus was saying. Meaning they didn't think they understood and understood wrong. But they knew they didn't understand. And they were unwilling to ask. The ability and the willingness to ask questions is how you will learn and grow. Maybe they were scared of looking foolish. Maybe they were scared of Jesus rebuking them like he rebuked Peter uh, a few verses earlier. Maybe they held on to the old lawyer's adage, never ask a question you don't want to know the answer to. Maybe their pride was just too much for them to realize that they were wrong on certain things. Now to me, that pride aspect makes a lot of sense because that's what we see Jesus address in the second half of this. Uh, while the previous few sections were very specific in their timing, uh, verse 46 shows us non-specific timing. This also happened. It doesn't say when. Luke pairs them to together, not because they occurred one and after another, which they may have done, but he pairs them together because it reiterates a point. They're joined together in their subject and the, the point that is being made. While the apostles didn't understand what Jesus was saying, it may have gotten them thinking about down the road. 
When, where would Jesus be going? When would he be reigning as a Christ? What is that going to look like? And they are arguing about who among them would be the greatest. It's a competition. Naturally occurring among a people. You get a group of people together, there's going to be competition. Sometimes that's an okay thing. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's not. Uh, in that day, status was all about who you were associated with and who you were attached to. And if you were attached to someone great and important, that meant that you were great and important. And it's that, that motivation, that ambition, that makes this competition not okay. It's the heart of where the apostles were coming from that is the issue here. Now, some ambition is good. We all rightly want our life to matter. We rightly want to make a difference, to do good for the kingdom of God. We all want our lives to not be wasted. But in doing so, so often and so easily, we focus on the wrong reasons and the wrong methods especially, and, and so on. We get things wrong because in doing so, our pride starts to grow. We are important. God can't do it without us. He needs our permission to work. We need to ask him to do it. He needs our permission to save. We become like cats. Now, let me explain that. Or better yet, I'll let Kent Hughes explain. He writes, Consider the difference between dogs and cats. The master pets a dog, and the dog wags its tail and thinks, Wow, he must be God. The master pets his cat, and the cat purrs, shuts its eyes, and thinks to itself, I must be God. After God has graciously reached down to us, there is a perverse human tendency to think like the cat. Now he continues on later on and he says, we may not think I must be God, but we do silently imagine I must be pretty good. We become proud of our apparent sanctification, our knowledge of the Bible, our evangelical routines. After all, we understand the mysteries of grace while the unregenerate dolts around us have no clue. We become proud of our spirituality. Now, Hughes has a very, very good point here. We start to become proud of ourselves and the spiritual growth that has taken place in our lives. We, we have the thing that allows us to come to Christ, the thing that allows us to put our faith and our trust in him, the humility, the humbleness that allows ourselves to see our sins, to see our true identity and our need for a savior, and that we have that as we start in our walk with Christ. But a lot of times that ends up falling away. A lot of times if we're not careful, we lose sight of who we are, who we were, and what God has done. And we start to see the growth that God has done in us. And we start to be proud of that growth. Jonathan uh, Edwards says, The only thing we contribute to our salvation is a sin that made it necessary. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have nothing to do with our salvation. And yet we often take too much pride in our salvation as if it is something we accomplished. And then we get prideful. We get arrogant. We look down on those who are not saved. And that is not a good witness and that is not a good look. Jesus sees this pride growing in his disciples and he brings a child to his side as an illustration. Children in that day were considered unimportant. They were not useful to one's status. I wish I had written down the one quote I saw in the, the, the rabbi text from, from the, the, 
early BCs, it says, there lists the three or four things that were a waste of time during the day. And children were one of them. To spend time with children was a waste of time. It's not that the children were unimportant in, in and of themselves. Because obviously they would grow up to become who they were. They would, they would grow up and, and everything. But the idea of taking intentional time with them during the day instead of doing what they thought they were supposed to do for God, that's what was considered wasteful at that time. So Jesus pulls the child into his side. And, and as Jesus is showing us, as one commentator points out, there is glory in receiving, in caring for, in holding, in teaching, and in nurturing children. Children, we can see Christ through children. We are to be concerned with them and to take their lowly positions for ourselves. We are to take the time to invest in them, to love them, to show them Christ as we can see Christ through them. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve. And so we are to take that position that children had during that day, that unimportant and lowly position, and we are to take that upon ourselves. Now we are called in scripture to have a childlike faith, but we are never called to have a childish faith. That means that we are to trust in God the Father just as our kids implicitly trust us as, his, as their parents. God our Father, we trust Him like our kids trust us with their lives. But we are not to go through, and the other things that our children do that are not implicitly trusting us, that's childish faith. And that is not how we are to act with God the Father. It reminds us that there is a huge difference between believing in God and believing God. Anybody can say they believe in God, but we see the fruit when they believe God. R.C. Sproul writes, that's what Jesus is saying here. Trust me. You can't believe in me and then not trust me. That's what faith is. It's trust. And so he says, he who is least among you all, by which he means he who is most trusting, is the one who is great. Now, I think it's, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say the one who's least among you will be the greatest. Even in that, he's in, even when telling us how to be great by being the least, makes it clear that this is not a competition. There is not a, a ranking of the greatest, the second greatest, the third greatest. There's a tier. And if you are uh, least among you, if you are a servant, if you are taking that position and remaining humble in humility, you will be considered great. He makes sure to remove any obstacles to allow us to get our hearts in the wrong positions. And yet we still insist on getting our hearts in the wrong spots. Service, humility, humbleness, not thinking too highly of ourselves. These are the characteristics that Christ calls us to. These are the things that he modeled day after day to the apostles, that he shows us in the scriptures, uh, passage after passage. These are the things that he has called us to as well. J.C. Ryle writes, of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. Jesus here is showing us what some refer to as the upside-down kingdom. To be first, you must be last. To be first, you must be a servant to all. 
You are to serve each other. You are to serve others with humility and humbleness. You are to be a servant. Jesus was the servant savior. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the meekness, which is not weakness, but it's strength controlled, strength held in. We look at these things, that service that we are to, to, to do. We are called to serve, to think of others as better than ourselves, Scripture says. Jesus here is, is not talking about how to become a Christian. You do not become a Christian by serving, by doing good works, or by being a good person, by anything that you do. Instead, he is talking about how you live after you are a Christian. To be a Christian is to serve. Are we serving? Some, some of us are. Some of you are. Some of your service is absolutely vital to this church's, the church's door staying open and it functioning on a daily basis. And for, to those of you who are doing that, I sincerely thank you. The question is for each of us to ask day in and day out, deep in our heart. Are we serving God? Are we serving in the way that he has called us to serve? This involves so many different aspects of our life. Are you serving your wife or your spouse? Are you, serving, are you loving your wife as Christ loves the church? Are you serving your husband? Are you serving your children, your parents? Are you serving your community? Are you serving, serving your neighbors? Are you serving the church? Are you serving Jesus' church? These are questions that we have to ask on a daily basis. We were created to worship, and part of worship is serving. We are called to serve. So we ask ourselves, are we filling our calling? And this upside down kingdom goes against everything that this world holds in high esteem. Dave preached a couple of weeks ago, difference in the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. The, the upside down kingdom is the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to man. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the son of God. He is God himself. He is a warrior king. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the fulfillment of all scriptures. And he was born a lowly baby. And he died a shameful death on the cross. He was born uh, a, a, a human baby. He touched and he healed lepers. He ate with outcasts. He had in his group repentant sinners. He calls sinners to repent and he fights against the injustices of the powerful. But he rose again and he defeated death. He ascended into heaven where today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ready to come again where every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that he is Lord. That kingdom is upside down to this world. Because it starts at the bottom. It starts with those whom Jesus came to serve. It starts with those whom Jesus came to save. The outcasts and the dregs and the lowly, the sinners of which we all are, of which we all were. But God. Two greatest words in scripture. But God has changed us from sinners to saints when we trust by faith in Christ. He has changed our identity. He has covered us in his blood and his righteousness. He has changed our identity from a child of this world, a child of Satan to a child of God, adopted into his family, living with him for eternity. 
These are things that we cannot do for ourselves, but things that he came to do for us. He didn't come. As we, we see the Christmas story, most, it's mentioned in most times, that th- the wise men went to the palace. The wise men went to see the future king. They went to where they thought the king would be. But he wasn't there. He was in a little, little place in Bethlehem, born among the lowly, to identify with us, not with presidents and kings and queens, not with the rich and the powerful, although they are welcome to to trust in him uh, in faith as well. It is not limited to the lowly. It's not limited to to the the ones that he, he came down amongst, but it is open and available to all who will repent, to all who will trust in him. This is upside down of everything the world says, where it starts at the top. It starts with power. It starts with influence. If I get power, I can change things. I can, then I can serve. Then I can make things better. Then I can do what needs to be done. Once I get power, Jesus says, I have the power. I'm coming down to the bottom, making myself powerless. I'm not saying that he had no power when he was down at the bottom. Don't misunderstand my point. But he came down to be with the powerless, to empty himself and to be a human man, also God, living a perfect life, reaching out to those who otherwise would be lost and to save them. The kingdom is in place. The kingdom of God is here. But it's upside down from what we expect. One theologian writes, one of the most challenging concepts of the kingdom of God is that what we celebrate as people on earth is often of little value in the kingdom and vice versa. Jesus' teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is at odds with much of human wisdom. Jesus' establishment of his kingdom through death rather than through human strength is a foolish stumbling block to our world. The elevation of the weak and th- is a stumbling block to the world, yeah. The elevation of the weak and foolish as well as celebrating personal weakness and God's power make no sense to a world that celebrates power and wisdom. The nature of the kingdom of God is radically different than any human kingdom. All the human attributes that are valued in our world are of little account in the kingdom, and the attributes valued in the kingdom are typically discounted in our world. We will never, on our own, know or enter the kingdom. It is only by the grace and mercy of God that we can be a part of his kingdom. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not through anything that we have done, not through anything that we can or could do, so that none of us can brag or boast, but through and in Christ alone. Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, you, words fail me at times when I think about what you have done for us, when I think about your majesty, when I think about your sacrifice, when I think about that you would even care to look down on us, on me, the most of all sinners, and that you would love us so much that you would send your son to do what we can't do, to do what we wouldn't do, 
and to give, give his life for the ransom of many. Lord, help us to remember what you have done for us. Help us to remember and to stay humble. Let us to remember that our spiritual growth, our uh, behavior, our sanctification is because of you and you alone. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. Reach in our hearts. Help us to, to love you. Help us to serve you. Help us to, to put us in that position of service and to share the wonderful, amazing, upside-down kingdom gospel. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Bangor Community Church. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash B-A-N-G-O-R Community Church C-A, all one word. If you would like to connect with Pastor Casey, please hop on over to caseyhelenchuk.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y-H-O-L-E-N-C-I-K.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at caseyholanchik.com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.